Well, it's summertime, and in summertime, uh, it's a time for reading in America. Reading actually increases during the summertime as people have a little bit more leisure time, and certain books are popular. The books that seem to be popular around summertime is what I call the Do Better, Be Better books, right? Uh, One book that's quite popular on New York Times bestseller list right now is a book called The Power of Letting Go. And the promises that this book has are this. Here's a promise. It's going to help you be present and enjoy each moment. It's going to let you get rid of the thoughts that keep you stuck. It's going to let you let go of the pain that runs your life. And it's going to help you surrender and tune into something far more intelligent than your brain. I don't know what that means far more intelligent than your brain, but that's what it promises on the back of the book. Some of you scoff right away when you hear those promises from those books, and you can smell a self-help book from a mile away. And you think, oh, this is just another book that uh, is on the New York Times bestseller list that's kind of like clickbait that is just trying to reel me in to make money. Some of us are on that end, the skeptics of the crowd. Some of us are the ones that just, we just eat these books up, right? We might not want to admit it to our spouse or those around us, but that book sounds really good. What's the name of it again? How can I purchase that so I can be present and enjoy each moment? Well, here today, we're going to hear from another bestseller. This bestseller promises this, a path of life. It promises fullness of joy. It promises pleasures evermore. For you skeptics out, the, out there, you might know, not know this, but it actually these words come from the Psalms. And this promise that these Psalms make has actually something for you. Something to read, something to meditate on, something to ponder. For those of you longing for a change or a mix and you just go after those self-help kind of ideas, yeah, this is not a current book. It's a book written 3,000 years ago by the psalmist. And here's the thing. The tactics and the strategies are different than today's self-help books. But they answer the cry of the human soul for confidence, for joy, for pleasures evermore. Maybe you scoff at such words. Maybe these words sound like a marketing pitch. Maybe they sound too good to be true. Many of you might long for these words in your life. No matter if you're a skeptic, or one that goes after self-help, let's hear what the psalm has to say to us and how it might train, change us and transform us. Please pay attention. Let's look. Psalm 16. It's printed in your worship guide. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, welcome. We're going through the Psalms this summer. Maybe you've seen that in the what we're singing and what we're saying in confessions. These are the Psalms, the hymn book of Israel. And it really gets to the core of the human person. How someone wrestles with circumstances and situations around them. When someone is squeezed, what comes out? And here, Psalm 16, a Psalm of David, David is being squeezed. Probably the time of his life where he's running for his life from King Saul and those that are coming after him to kill him. And when David is squeezed, he does not hold back. He does not hold back his affection on God, his emotions, what he is going through. And we see the squeezing comes in many different ways. He sees that those around him are going a different way than the Lord. He sees his inheritance is under threat. He is anxious about the future. All these things we see in the psalm, and David is asking God as he is squeezed in this way, that God would preserve him. Help him in these circumstances. Many people have labeled Psalm 16 a psalm of confidence. There is shelter. There is help. There is counsel from the Lord, even in the toughest places. And we see that in the very beginning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is kind of the theme that permeates the psalm. You know, that's what self-help books do. They try to, you know, develop what your need is and kind of draw it out. Drawing out maybe themes like navigating hard relationships, how to save for retirement, how can you sleep better. You see, the psalmists take a different approach than self-help. See, self-help, it hits your need, or what steps do you need to take, or what things do you need to do. No, the psalmists don't do that. Instead, they talk about a conversation with something outside of themselves, with God, with transcendence, 
And the way that the psalmists work is that they are in conversation with God about what is going on in their life. I've said this before, I'll say it again as you read the psalms. The psalms are not talking simply about God. Instead, they're forcing us to talk to God. Rather than just getting information and deductive reasoning, what to do, steps to take, all those kind of things, it is actually being in the process of pain, the process of struggle. What do we do? And here the psalmist is not simply about what they do, they're instead about how they dialogue and talk and in relationship with God through all of these things. We see the first obstacle that the psalmist faces is in verses 2 through 4. He talks about those that are good in the land, but he's then talking about those outside the land that, or, or in the land that are a problem, that are doing things that are away from God. The prophets use this language in Psalm 16. Hosea uh, borrows from it. Other prophets do. And it's really talking about what we call syncretism. Syncretism is saying, I both worship God, but I also worship these pagan deities, taking false gods and trying to mix them with worship with God. You see, David is confused himself about this. Here he is, an Israelite, and other Israelites are pursuing him and trying to kill him. So he is stuck in this kind of place of how do I deal with the idea that those that are my brothers, Israelite brothers, are coming after to kill me. The prophets do the same thing. They're wondering, why are these people that are worshiping false gods, even in the land, even my brothers and sisters, Hebrews, why are they profiting from doing this? They are even getting gain from this. And we see this is the kind of stretching that David is facing, the psalmist is facing. We're seeing what this is what Israel faces. People that say they worship God, but then worship other gods. And they're also showing them, you need to follow these other paths other than following the Lord. It's interesting, as you go through Psalm 16, what happens is that you see that David, the psalmist, is choosing the Lord and his promises through all of these hard situations. He's saying, there's no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion. I will bless the Lord. I will set the Lord before me. Constantly through this stress, he is trusting in God, his promises, and going to God in conversation. Even in the situation here of those that are around him that are worshiping false gods, that have these gods upon their lips. I was reading about a pastor um, that was trying to get traction with his first published book. He was publishing a book because he wanted people to know the positive things about Jesus and let people know about Christ, but he wanted to sell it. Right? So he followed these things for self-promotion, right? Like he got on Instagram, he started advertising himself on Facebook, he opened a Twitter account, all of these things to get sales of his book rolling. Now hear me, there's nothing innately wrong with social media, maybe there's something innately wrong with Twitter, but um, not bashing these things, but what he found is by doing this, it was consuming him. This is what he says. 
He says, I soon found myself spiritually empty and a bit insecure. Instead of measuring my identity by the cross, I chose cheap metrics like likes and follows and comments. And there were never enough to satisfy my heart. Even worse, I lost focus on the reason for writing the book in the first place, which was to help people connect their faith in Jesus and in their work. You know, these things can be subtle at first. A side hustle, right? Oh, I'm just trying to get money so I can give it to the church, right? Maybe, oh, I'm just getting to meet more people and be involved in more things so I can tell more people about Jesus. Or I'm on Facebook or these kind of things to post to show God's faithfulness. And what happens is these things start to consume us. We start measuring our worth of how maybe built we are because maybe the gym is what we love and we just dedicate all of our life to it how our 401k is, how many people are at a party that we throw. And what happens is these things leave us unsatisfied. The psalmist says it, verse 2, I have no good apart from you. Actually, the translation in Hebrew would be, beyond you is nothing. Do we believe that? That the things that we love, whether it's the cabin, whether it's our retirement, whether it's um, exercising, whether it's friendships, they actually find true meaning when they're in the Lord. It's so easy to get caught up in these other things. And we trick ourselves. Trick ourselves thinking that they are enough, but they are not. The psalmist says, I'm not going to lose focus. You are the path of life. And he sees what happens to other people. Their sorrows of those who run after another God shall not multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. God is who is truly good. There is no good beyond him. And those things are good because they're what's God's creation. We see it moves on, verses 5 through 6. Here it's very interesting. The psalmist is claiming that God is his inheritance. God is his greater portion. God is his allotment. In 1 Samuel, David is talking about how the enemies of taking him out of the land. Saul is pursuing him. And really, the land is really important to Israel, right? That's a, a sign of God's blessing. And that's a sign of David's inheritance, right? Being with the land. But here, both in 1 Samuel and then here in Psalm 16, David says, no, the Lord is my inheritance, Again, David is echoing what God says to the tribe of Levi in Numbers. Levi, if you know this, is the tribe that does not have land. <laughs> They're not given a land inheritance. 
And God says to the Levites, I am your portion and your inheritance. Despite being run out, despite the pressure of the enemy, David is saying, the Lord is my inheritance. He is the one that brings joy and fullness of life. Here's the thing with self-help books. They say, make a plan for your life. Do this, do that. But many times, they don't account for the reality that life is. The things don't turn out always the way that you want them to. And many times when we try to cling to taking control of our lives or trying to set it up the way that we want to, it can steal our joy. Early in ministry and seminary, Aaron and I, we did not have a lot of money. And the idea of taking a vacation, just that, how we were going to afford that, what we were going to do, just didn't know what that was going to be like. But Aaron's um, biological father who died when she was young, he bought a cabin up in the UP. It's hard to call it a cabin, right, girls? It's kind of a shack, right? And this is the place we could go, right? During seminary and early in ministry. And I am telling you how much joy that brought, right? To be there with the kids, finding crayfish, you know, swimming in a cold lake, you know, having these like small grill and cooking things that, you know, we found in town and sitting in a hammock and just praying. It wasn't much, but I'm telling you, it was beautiful, a fullness of joy. I tell you, as you know, in your career, you start getting more money, right? And then you go to the cabin, and you're like, this is, this is my inheritance? This? Right? And you start thinking about, and this consumes me sometimes when I go to the cabin, like, how am I going to fix this or do this? Or one day we'll tear this down and build a better cabin, right? Those are the things that start to consume me when I go to the cabin now. And it steals my joy. God is my, my portion. We trust in Him. When we love Him, He gives us a more beautiful inheritance. Are you killing yourself in work just to get to vacation? Are you killing yourself just to get to retirement? And in the process, are you missing out on the greater portion? Some of the most beautiful moments in life is when you quiet yourself. You look at what God has provided, his beauty, the creator of the, the universe, and you delight in his relationship. In that presence, there is fullness of joy. In that place, you can find, even in hard situations, peace. You know, marriage and friendships, they are a glimpse of that. That in your presence is fullness of joy. Maybe you can think of times where you are at a party, 
or at a, a fun event or whatever it might be, and you weren't there with your spouse or weren't there with a friend, and it did not have that full meaning, and you thought to yourself, only if they were here with me, then there would be a fullness of joy in this place. That's what God is saying. In your presence, Lord, when I am with you is fullness of joy. Instead of me looking at the paint cracking on the cabin and thinking how many hours I need to paint this cabin, that I can actually be present with the Lord and with him there is fullness of joy rather than living in anxiety and thinking about what is going to be in my inheritance. He is my inheritance. Verses 7 through 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This is what we call in poetry parallelism. The parallelism is between verses 7 and 8. The first stanza matches the first stanza of uh, verse 8. So you see, give, here it says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And then the beginning of verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. You see the psalmist is saying he's letting the Lord instruct him. He's praying, he's trusting, he's building that relationship. And then we see the latter part of verse 7 and verse 8, the comparisons. In the night also my heart instructs me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Here the psalmist is talking about anxieties that might come. Here he talks in the latter part, in the night also my heart instructs me. Again, he's talking about at night time, his conscience, his will is facing the hard facts. But in that, the Lord instructs him in that place so he can deal with the anxiety that might come at night in the right way. And then in verse 8, it says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The right hand was a symbol of strength and power. Because most people are right-handed, you can think about having your forehand in tennis that you always want to hit to your forehand, right? And that's the idea there, that at my right hand I shall not be shaken. There is power and trust with the Lord. You know, self-help books, they can say, follow this step, do this, and I can fix myself. Get after it, and then you can solve the problems that are before you. But I know some of you have had conversations with some of you, and some of you have some of the issues that I have too. I call it the 2 to 5 a.m. window of life. Some of us are plagued with this, that we wake up in that time of 2 to 5 a.m. with major anxiety. It's because our brain is working through things, and then they come to our mind and we wake up and it floods our mind. All of these things. Here we see the psalmist is able to not be shaken by anxiety. Not be shaken. His heart is able to instruct him. Meaning the Lord is able to take control of those situations. I many times think, and this is what I do in the middle of the night, I have a pad of paper next to my bed and I start just writing down all the anxieties that come up in my mind and just have a list of things. 
This is, this is what I did early on in ministry. And the Psalms have taught me that as much as I try to write those things down and solve all of those problems, they are more complex than I'm ever able to figure out myself. And I've learned something by reading the Psalms. I've learned that in the Psalms, God wants to process the complexity of what's going on and the pressure around and be in relationship with us as we work through it. So I've put the pen and paper down <laughs> at 2 to 4 a.m. in the morning. And instead, I've sometimes gotten up, I've sat on the couch, and I have just poured my heart out to the Lord. God, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm facing. I am so overwhelmed. I do not know what to do. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Are you trying to figure out all the complexities of your problems? Do you have workflows that are crazy? <laughs> oh, I put this there, that there, I've had this there, this, that. God wants to be your counsel. I'm telling you, if you are in that place, it will start to ease your anxiety. Trying to control your life. Verses 9 through 11 then take all of these pressures, all of these things, and puts it into what the final product looks like. Verse 9, therefore, all of these things before, therefore, because I've done this, the Lord is my counsel, because I bless the Lord, because he is my refuge, therefore, because of these things, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Because the psalmist has made the God his refuge against false gods, greater inheritances, he is not shaken. His heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. His flesh is secure. I mean, that's a testimonial. We say, I want that. Give me that. I will sign up for that course. I will go on that retreat. I will buy every book that tells me that I can have that. I want the whole package to get that kind of thing. And trust me, there is a billion dollar industry to be able to get that. How do you get it? And you might think that's the way that Christianity works, right? It's just plug and play. Do these things, get this stuff. But here's what happens with the psalm. It takes it over the top. Right? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Dude, what the heck? He takes it to a level and says, I will not see death. My body will not be corrupted. What is the psalmist talking about? 
this is too good to be true. This is too good for even David to experience. David did die. So what is happening? A thousand years later, two gentlemen, Peter and Paul, used this same psalm in the same verses when they preach to new people learning about Christianity. They use Psalm 16. And do you know what they say? Peter says, you know what? David did see corruption. His tomb is here. You know that he died. So what was Psalm 16 talking about? And this is what Peter and Paul say. There is one that did not see corruption. There is one that conquered death. Scripture talks about fulfillment, that there will be an eternal son of David, a true good king whose kingdom will never end. And Peter and Paul say, we have seen him. We have seen that Christ has come and he has conquered death. We have seen that this has been fulfilled. There is hope in him. So many of us cry in our souls. Follow this plan. Believe in yourself. Read this book and you will find the path of life and pleasures evermore, we think. Many of us have tried to follow these plans and these ideas. But we wonder, where is true assurance? We face the real world. Injustices, setbacks, financial strains, relational discord, and of course, death. Self-help leaves us empty and gives us a false encouragement. And it is shifting sands. But true confidence can be found. A path of life is found in the one that did not see corruption. The one that actually physically lived on this earth and did what we could not do ourselves. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, at the power seat of the Lord. And it is with him that there are pleasures evermore. You want this? You want your whole being to rejoice? You want to not find corruption? You want the path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures evermore? then your inheritance needs to be found in Christ. Take refuge in Him. And hear what Peter says in 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready 
to be revealed in the last time. The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures evermore are found when we have refuge in Him. That is how we will not have corruption. Do you believe that? 